Well, it is good to be here this morning with you. My name is Ryan, if you're a guest this morning, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at, at, oh gosh, Lord help me, at Crossroads. I'll get that right. I knew, I said, I'm not gonna do that. So I wanna welcome you if you're here sitting with us, if you're out in the atrium, if you're online to our friends in Maine that are watching in New England, it's so great to have everybody with us this morning here at Crossroads. So it is awesome to have you here today. And I'll get that right one of these days. 12 years, you know, old habits die hard, right? But uh, it's, it's really good to be here. And uh, we're starting this brand new series today that I'm really excited about called Hope Rising. And you're here for week one. And uh, here's hope when you come back after it. Just keep our fingers crossed. Inside your program are some talk notes. If you're a talk notes person, you kind of maybe learn a little tactile you want to fill in, you can pull those out. Uh, the bold yellow words on the screen behind me, those are the fill-ins. I make it nice and easy for you. So you don't even have to guess. And if it gets really bad, really boring, you can play Mad Libs. And you just fill in your own words there and post it later. And it's a fun, right? I always, that's what I always say about the talk notes is the most important thing about the talk note is it gives you hope that it will finish. Just one more fill in. Dear God, help him land this plane. Fill it, you'll start shouting it out. It's hope, Jesus, the answer's Jesus. Just put it in the favor, right? So uh, I'm glad you're here today and uh, it, we're gonna have a fun time, all right? How many of you have ever felt like life is out of control? You ever look like this? right? Your hair just, and you didn't even touch your hair. Life touched your hair. You know what I'm talking about? Life disheveled you, right? And these things happen in our world, right? We find ourselves all of a sudden where we just feel like we're in a pit. We feel like there's no way out. Sometimes all of a sudden we discover we're holding a shovel. (laughs) Like we're in this bottom of this pit. Like, how did I get here? Like, oh yeah, MasterCard with my name on it. That's how I got here. Right? How did I get here? Oh, that's right. I ignored my wife and my kids and now they don't have anything to do with me. Oh, that's the shovel in my hand. And we have that aha moment. How did I get here? And then there's those moments where we're in the bottom of that you know, pit and it's like, how did I get here? And you're looking around and you look up and somebody else is holding the shovel. You know, cancer's holding the shovel. Somebody abused you is holding the shovel. Right? Somebody else, there's some other wounding that's happened in your life and you just say, how am I gonna get out of here? And all of a sudden in that moment, it just feels like whatever that area was, whether it was our finances or our relationships, our occupation, we lost our job, whatever, maybe everything, your whole world seems to just all of a sudden fall into this pile of ash. And it looks nothing like what you planned it to be. I've never met a person who walked into their marriage and said, this is my first one. We're gonna give it a shot. You know, it's probably, you know, it's probably gonna be two, three, maybe four, five. Nobody does that. But life happens. Bad things happen. And all of a sudden that marriage, that relationship, those finances, a pile of ash and we wonder what's gonna happen. And when life feels like that, the truth is, you know what? We get consumed with one question. When, when we're feeling like this area of our life or our whole life is just a pile of ash in front of us or we're in it, we're consumed with this question, Why? Anybody in the room ever asked that question, why, during a difficult time? Raise your hand up nice and high. You ever asked that question, why? Now, put your hands down. Now, here's the truth. Most of us never get that question answered this side of eternity, which makes it so difficult. Why? But it is the all-consuming question when life is a pile of ash. When you're Chris Norton and you sign up and you say, you know what? I'm gonna go play football. 
I'm gonna enjoy my college life. You get a scholarship to a smaller school so you get to go play. You know you're not gonna play professional football, but this is a joy that you have and you wanna play four more years. And so you go and you sign up and you get the scholarship for the small school and you go and on the first play, on the field, special teams, you're running down the field, you miss time, you're, you're tackled just enough and you're paralyzed instantly for the rest of your life. You're given a 97% chance to never move again. How are you not consumed with why? How does your life not feel like a pile of ash? How in the world do you possibly imagine that Luke chapter 18 verses 18 and 19 are true? Y'all know what Luke chapter 18 says? I don't know either until I look it up. So that's good. Don't worry about it, right? If you're new to Bible study, this is the place to be. No prerequisite required. Right, if you're sitting next to somebody and I said, Luke, and they had their Bible opened up. First of all, they had a Bible, but they had their Bible opened up and they were there and you felt bad about yourself, you shouldn't. Because imagine how messed up their life is that they have to know where Luke is that fast. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> like if you know the books of the Bible, you have got some serious problems, right? <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding. So Bible, listen, let's just say it out there. And you, I'll say this a lot because I expect that we have guests a lot. So you'll hear me say this all the time, but the Bible is not an easy book. It's not even a book. First of all, it's a collection. So if you're new to Bible study, this is what the Bible is. It's a very ancient, diverse collection of writings written over thousands of years by hundreds of different authors that we try to put together and make sense of the universe with out of faith. And it's challenging. So anybody that told you the Bible is easy to understand, they lied or the seven years and hundreds of thousands of dollars that I invested in education was the biggest scam ever. right? These are complicated things. And so if you ever find yourself with the desire to look at the Bible, read the Bible, and you go, man, this is confusing, and you want to give up, don't give up. Just, okay, it's confusing. That's all right. And, and, and so we're here, bottom line is, to follow Jesus. And, and, and Jesus made it simple, difficult, but simple. He said, love God, love your neighbor. That's what it's all about. And that is simple, and we can grasp it, and it's hard, and scripture helps us do that, but you'll always hear me say, I'm not here to figure out how to follow the Bible. Nobody follows the Bible. I don't care who you are, you don't follow the Bible. You all are wearing cotton polyester blend. You don't follow the Bible, right? So we can relax a little bit and say, okay, we're gonna leverage the Bible to help us understand how people follow Jesus, understood God, and how we do that in our day and age, all right? So Luke is a part of the Bible. It's found in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. The word testament is just a kind of translation for the word covenant or relationship. And, and in the New Testament, we have the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the movement that flowed out of that, right? Not the religion that flowed out of it, that came later, but the movement that flowed out of that. And it's a, it's a wonderful group of people just trying to figure out what does it mean to follow this guy that we think God was fully manifest in and was fully God, right? This is very difficult. And, and we have these four books we call gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke is one of the stories of Jesus told from a particular perspective, from a particular bent to a particular community, right? Luke was a doctor and it's traditionally been thought of that Luke wrote this, but can I tell you, it doesn't really matter who wrote it. <laughs> so don't get all weirded out. If somebody says Luke didn't write it, it's okay. So Luke writes this and, and, and we have this author and he tells us this great story. And I'm not even gonna go through the whole story today. I'm gonna talk about two verses, all right? Luke chapter 18, verse 18 through 19. This is what Luke says. It says, once a religious leader, think Pastor John Smith, a religious leader, a holy man, a pious man, right? Been in it his whole life, loves Jesus, right? Comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, how many of you know that's a good question if you believe in eternity, <laughs> 
right? If you believe in eternity and you believe that Jesus has something to say about it, is wise as a teacher, religious teacher, and has authority, the guy's been healing people. And the only way people were healed is that they were forgiven of sin, this whole like way that they thought about things then. He comes, that's a great question. Now I'm interested in what Jesus has to say. Now here's how Jesus answers the question. Why do you call me good? And Jesus' mother, if he was around, Mary would be like, don't answer a question with a question, Jesus. I taught you better than that, <laughs> right? Any parents in the room, you said that, your kids, right? Don't answer a question. That's Jesus. He always answers questions with a question. And I imagine the religious leader like, hold on, Jesus. Like, did you even hear me? Are you listening, right? Did, were, what, did a butterfly fly by? What's going on, Jesus? Like, I, but Jesus catches the real heart here. And he says, he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Because here's the deal, only God is truly good. Now, the funny thing is, is he making a claim about himself or is he making a claim about the reality of God and what this person has misunderstood about God and what humans can do versus what God can do, right? And so when I think of stories like Chris Norton, when I think of your life and my life and that, those things that happen to us that are not good, those things that really don't make any sense, that if there is a God that is good and loving and that is in control, how can we say God is good? How can we look at famine and disease and war, the developing world, the corruption? How can we look at Congress, <laughs> right? I don't care who's in the White House, right? How can you look at that and say God is good, right? And, and so what we've done is we've tried to hold together everything with this very strange thought that, okay, all these bad things happen in the world, but God is all powerful and God is good. And so that means that God must be causing it for some reason. And so what happens when you go through something really difficult, some very well-meaning follower of Jesus comes and says something that totally hurts. They say something like, it's all part of God's plan. As you stand over a four foot casket, it's all part of God's plan. Now, the genuine meaning is I'm trying to bring you hope, but I look and say, well, that's a God that has a messed up plan. <laughs> if it's part of God's plan to take my four-year-old from me, that's, no, no. But that's how we hold it all together because we're afraid to actually say, well, my lived out experience tells me that how is this possible? So I started to think about like my life and, and the, the, the places and spaces that I've been and said, how do I hold this truth that I believe Jesus is God in the flesh? And I believe what we have in the gospel is inspired that we ought to know it and learn from it. I don't think Luke is wrong, but my life tells me that there's something odd here. And so I started to think, and I thought, well, maybe we need to rethink the word good based upon what Jesus said, that only God is truly good. Like you and I can do good and we can have good and we can be good, but only God in essence, right, is good. And so I had to ask, well, what is it that only God can do? What is it that only God can do? And if that, then I would determine that fits in the category of good. And there's only a few things I wanna talk about one for just a few moments. And here's the thing. I believe that only God can take what evil intends and turn it into good outcomes. I believe that only God can take the evil intentions of this world and say, guess what? I'm powerful enough to turn it into your good and the good of your neighbor. And here in, in the faith that we call Christianity or that we talk about following Jesus, we would call that, I would call that resurrection. To take what is death, what is meant for death and turn it into what is meant for life, that is resurrection. And there's this guy in the first part of the Bible, the, the Jewish scriptures that we, our heritage comes out of as followers of Jesus, right? In Genesis chapter 50, we, we have this story of Joseph. It actually starts back in like Genesis 37, I think. 
In Genesis 37, we learn about this guy named Joseph. And, and a lot of you, you've been around church, you've heard the story of Joseph. If you're new, like totally worth Googling, like Joseph in the coat of many colors, uh, not the Technicolor dream coat. I mean, it might be, it's a good show, but you know, read that story. And, and you find this guy who starts his life, he's a completely spoiled brat. Like he really is. We don't like to say that because we like to think of everybody in the Bible as pious, but Joseph starts off as a spoiled brat, the favored son of all these kids going around flaunting that his dad loves him more than anybody else. His brothers didn't like this, so they sold him, right? That's what you do. <laughs> How many of you in high school, like I would sell my brother? Yes, right, right, definitely. That's part of the play. In fact, that's my Sunday afternoon, right? But that's what they did. They threw him in a pit. They sold him. And they, they went and then told their dad that he died. They dipped his coat, like his, this favorite coat of many colors in a bunch of blood and went and said, mm, an animal ate him. Sorry, dad, let's just move on. <laughs> and that's what they did. They just moved forward in life. Well, God had a different idea of what was gonna happen with Joseph's life. And Joseph got sold into slavery, rose into a position of power with his master, and then was falsely accused, imprisoned. And I mean, prison wasn't three squares a day, okay? That's not what prison was in antiquity. He's in the pit is what, you know, preachers always preach that message from the pit to the palace, right? I just can't do it that well. But he's in this prison and, and he helps somebody get out of prison. He says, hey, just remember me. And the guy forgets him. <laughs> he's too busy with his own life, leaves Joseph there and a few years later, He's reminded, and there's this, this, the, the king at the time, the guy who's in charge of the whole known world, the Pharaoh, right? He says he has this bad dream. He needs somebody to come, give him some warm milk, calm him down. And this guy says, oh, there's this guy named Joseph. He might still be alive. <laughs> I kind of forgot about him. And uh, he helped me with the dream and maybe he comes up, gives this dream. And at the end of the day, Joseph is brought into the position of second in power to the greatest kingdom known on the planet at the time. And he saves the entire world, right? The known world from famine, his policies, great political leader. Our leaders could learn a lot from Joseph. And uh, he, so he, he's, he gets into this position, right? So then what happens is the brothers show back up one day with the famine, with dad. And they don't recognize Joseph because the last time they saw him, he was just this ruddy little kid that they beat up through in a pit and sold. They weren't thinking anything about him. And Joseph reveals himself. Joseph saves everybody. And then a few years later, dad dies. And now the brothers are like, oh no. Because they have this feeling like Joseph's just been waiting till dad dies. Now he's gonna take revenge. And so they go to Joseph. And they're like, hey, you wanna have lunch? So they go in and they're like, hey, we were talking to dad and super grateful for you. Love, love the outfit, the hat, the throne. Awesome. And dad was like, hey, just make sure Joseph doesn't kill you now that I'm dead. What? Are, are we together on this, Joseph? What do you think? And they're really just scared because Joseph has the power to do it. And nobody would blame him either, right? We'd be like, yeah, that's how they handled things in antiquity. Even today, if he would have slaughtered them all, we'd be like, yeah, that's how it worked back then. <laughs> but this is one of the most inspired parts of the Bible because this is what Joseph says. In a culture that would never understand this type of forgiveness and mercy and grace, we see what God really is. And Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for, what's the word? Good. Good. 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. And that is resurrection, the redemption of evil intentions. That's resurrection. And that's what God does. And that's what it is to say that God is powerful and that God is moving in the midst of the evil. That there is evil in this world and its intent is anti-God. But God's intent for all of our lives, the difficulties, the easy things, the good things, the bad things, is his good being worked out. And we see this in its fullest expression, the person of Jesus. All of God we see in the fullest expression in Jesus. That the greatest evil act of evil intent was to kill God, hang God on a cross, to say that death has the final word. And so Jesus, who is the the culmination of God in the flesh, death comes along and says, I'm not only am I gonna kill you, but I'm gonna radically humiliate you. I'm gonna hang you on a cross like a criminal. And I'm gonna show the world that there is no hope, that there is no power, that this God is nothing more than one who desires for you to go out in the wilderness and worship this God and serve this God. But this God can do nothing for you because you're gonna die anyway. And so Jesus hangs on a cross, but three days later he walks out and is like, was that all you got? That's it? I mean, don't get me wrong, that was bad. But is that really all you got? And that's the power of resurrection. This isn't some new concept. This isn't like God just decided, oh, I think I'll start resurrecting things with Jesus. You go back to the prophet Isaiah, right? You're talking about a difficult book in the Bible. Here's one for you, right? Isaiah's a very complex book. A lot of folks, they think it's written by three people at least over a huge period of time in the voice of Isaiah in a school of thought. And this is a complex book, but here's what Isaiah chapter 61, verse three says. It says, to all who mourn in Israel, God will give you a crown of beauty for what? Ashes. That when you feel like your life is in a heap of ashes, God will turn it and give you something beautiful out of it. That that's what God can do. He says, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. God has always been and will always be in the business of the phoenix rising out of the ashes. We wonder why that image captures the whole world. Because it's truth. Because it's universal. Because it's what we long for, it's what we believe, it's what our soul says, it's the God part of who we are that connects with God. Spirit connects to spirit. And that part of our spirit that says something has to rise out of the ashes is what is the divine image and nature in all humanity. And it is cross, it crosses religions and cultures. It is a universal truth and it stems from God that the ashes of this life do not have to stay that way that they can be resurrected. And so here's the point. I know some of you are like, is there one? There is, here it is. I even write on it every week, the point, in case there's confusion. See, my assumption is that I'm a confusing dude. Okay, so here it is. Here's the point. That God has things under control, even when life is out of control. See, we want to hold to a God that's in control because that's what we've been taught. That's what it means to be all powerful. And so that's where we get crazy things like this is all part of God's plan. But I reject that. And I understand a God that does not have to be in control to have things under control. And that holds the world together for me. That I don't have to like the evil in my life. I don't have to celebrate the cancer. I don't have to celebrate the death, the early loss, the tragedy, the floods. I don't have to say, well, this is God's punishment on this culture and nation because where there's death, There is not God, because God is life. 
God is light, pure light. In him, there is no darkness. But I can celebrate that in the midst of the chaos, when everything feels out of control, God has it under control. And that's what your soul craves. Your, your soul craves that understanding. You know how I know that? Because we all love the movies with the, the main hero where she has it under control even when she's not in control. Let's talk Wonder Woman, come on. Mm. Wonder Woman. There is a scene in Wonder Woman, I'm gonna show it again. There's a scene in Wonder Woman, bullets flying everywhere. And all the, all the military, the army, they're like, look out, get down. She's like, what are you talking about? Right, and she's like, no, I don't know. And everybody's, she, and she's like, uh, see you later. And she, in it's slow motion, you know, it's great theater, right? Do you all watch movies? I don't, and, okay, I just wanna be sure. Cause you're kind of looking at me like you never heard of Wonder Woman. I thought, oh man, y'all are way holier than I am. Okay, so. so <laughs> Stick with me. Okay, so she like picks up and she's like, uh, I'm gonna go free the people, see you later. And she goes out and granted, she's got superpowers and they don't. I, I, fair enough, I'll give them that. But it's that spirit. Like we want Wonder Woman. Things are all in, out of control, out of her. She's not in control. But I'm gonna tell you what, that woman has it under control. She's got it together. The whole thing. And, and something inside of us just loves it and we resonate with it because it's truth that the bullets are flying and flaring around and she's not in control, give me a break, but she's under it. She's got it under control. And that is a microcosm, that is a wonderful parable, that is a wonderful image of what the universe, what God, what love is. It has things under control even when it's all out of control. And that has to be what all powerful means, not all controlling. It has to be. Because here's the thing, you cannot have freedom, love and choice and be in control. It's impossible. How many of you are married, have a boyfriend, girlfriend, something like that? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know some days you wish you had control, I get it. But most of the days you want freedom, love, and choice. And I'm gonna tell you what, there's pain and there's harm and there's hurt that comes with those things, but it's worth it. And so you are not in control of your spouse. You don't hold them and you don't force them to do. And one of the greatest images that we get out of scripture is that the, the people who, who, who understand Jesus that are submitted to this way are the bride of Christ, right? That we're not being controlled, but we are under control. The, the world around us, it's under control, right? So, so, so we cannot have both. We cannot have a God that controls everything and have freedom, love, and choice. And God says, well, the freedom, love, and choice far exceed any sacrifice necessary, including my own death, my own suffering. So what does this mean for your everyday life? Because here's the deal. If it's no good for Monday, it's no good for Sunday, right? And I'm trying to rhyme one with Thursday. So if it's no good for Thursday, it's no good for Tuesday, right? I wanted you to be able to tweet both if you're a Thursday person. If it's no good for tomorrow, why are we even worried about it today? Why? So how does this hit our everyday lives? Here's what I know about you, you will suffer. You will, it is unavoidable. I don't care how good you are, how pure and spotless you think you are. Notice I said, think you are, right? It doesn't matter, you will suffer. Evil is persistent. And when you walk in that suffering, here's what I want you to remember, that God is not simply all powerful, but God is also all suffering. That the God who, holds the stars, who calls them each by name, 
submitted to the suffering of this world and said, I will walk in the suffering with you and I will understand it fully and I will be present in the suffering. And see, the way we miss the redemption of suffering, the way we miss resurrection, the way we miss the sacredness of it is we just move to the triumphant understanding of God. And we, you know, we white middle-class evangelical types love that just all-powerful God, that God who elects our gal, our girl, whatever it might be, that foolishness. We bypass a God who suffers. See, when you see Jesus, right? I hate to break the news to you, but Jesus didn't heal everybody he saw. Jesus didn't show this expression of controlling everything or even being all powerful, but he suffered everything we would suffer, more grueling than we would ever endure. He said, that's it, I've conquered it. And now you can have the hope that you'll conquer it too. And when that starts to get in our hearts, we'll stop asking why and we'll be consumed with a better question, how? How is God gonna use this for his good? Which means, how is God gonna use it for my good and for the good of my neighbor? How is it gonna happen? And our expectations and our definitions of this God concept, right, that is personal as revealed in scripture, but bigger than personhood and bigger than all these things, our, our perception and our expectation of God changes, right? We will start to expect God's redemption and not God's prevention of evil. See, there's a brand of faith out there that says, oh, if you just do everything right, if you just give this amount, if you just do this, if you just do that, if you go to the right church, which, you know, I don't know if you're at it or not. It's got me in it, so I can tell you it's probably messed up, right? <laughs> Party of one, right? I mean, that's just... But there's this brand that says, oh, God will prevent these things. And when bad things happen, it just must be God either punishing or cleansing. Because, and I get where it comes from. It comes from a very ancient way of understanding the universe that most of scripture and, and most people only understood that there was causality. And there was the only way that the world could be ordered because of tribalistic understandings. But we understand through Jesus and through the revelation of Jesus over time that that's not how God works. That that's not the fullest expression that what, what this world intends for evil, the evil in this world, God uses it for good. I believe that the core of my being and it holds everything together. And so now I no longer look and expect God to prevent evil from hitting my heart and my life because I know that evil persists. But I expect and believe deeply that God will redeem it. Does it mean it doesn't hurt? Does it mean there aren't days I don't wanna go to church? Does it mean there aren't days I don't wanna look at the Bible? Does it mean there aren't days I don't wanna pray? Does it mean there aren't days that I don't doubt? But it just means that at the core of who I am, there's a foundation that God is in the Redemption business, not the prevention business. And the question then is, how does this transform us? How does that mentality, how does that understanding transform us? Well, here's what happens. Doubt and fear and just basically relative like incoherence, fear of this world, fear of the universe, fear of God is transformed into hope. And hope takes a hold of our hearts and it grips our minds and all of a sudden we start to see it. Our eyes are open and we see God's phoenix begin to rise out of these circumstances. The greatest tragedies of our life, we see his victory come out of it. We start to feel those diamonds and we become those diamonds, right? That we sang about in that first song, right? Those demons that are just wishing they were free like us. That in every heartache, in every fear, there's a diamond that we are the sun that we are the light, that you know what? You're gonna know my name when I rise up in victory, when I say to the evil one, no, 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 no. Death couldn't hold me. The grave's not gonna keep me. Nothing will. 
And that's the reality of that, that, that work that God does that is good. And that's what it means to be good. Now remember Chris Norton, paralyzed to 18, 97% chance, never move again. Life is over, but there's more to this story. Check it out. Dear Lord, the battles we go through in life. Dear Lord, the battles we go through in life. We ask for a chance to despair. We ask for a chance to despair. Chance to earn all our stripes. Chance to earn all our stripes. Chance to do it or dare. Chance to do it or dare. If we should win, we should win. Let it be by the code. Let it be by the code. With our faith and honor held high. With our faith and honor held high. If we should lose, we should lose. Stand by the road. Stand by the road. Cheers and victories go by. Just in a matter of seconds, I went from independent to dependent, and I couldn't feel a thing. You know, something I've always done my whole life is to stay positive, stay calm. I just started to, to cry, and that's when they put me to sleep. I'm not going to be part of the 97% that doesn't recover from this. A little farther. Good. I'm going to do what I can to beat it. I had to relearn how to move different parts of my body with what was connected. To be upright, to be standing, was like a sense of freedom. And when I met Emily, everything changed. It was, it was love at first sight for me. I had a list of what do I want in a guy. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> Chris is every single one of these. I just started verbalizing with my friends that I want to walk across the stage of my college graduation. At this point, we had no idea how he was going to walk across the stage. He was walking in this big walker. He was working four or five hours every single day, sometimes even more. Chris had another little plan <laughs> that I didn't know about. Please. What was incredible was that the person that was going to walk me across the stage would be my fiance, Emily. I went to that graduation walk knowing I busted myself for years. If I trip and fall, so be it. Christopher Norton. on everything that you do, what you're supposed to do, that's when you can make the most significant impact and the biggest difference. I want to be able to walk Emily down the aisle of our wedding. I'm going to walk her down the aisle some way, somehow, and we're going to go seven yards. And I want to walk with her side by side. I'm looking forward to the challenge. That's why it matters. That's resurrection, that's redemption. An understanding of faith and the work of Christ in our lives as simply a prevention from a place called hell is early immature religion. But a Jesus that affects that measure of hope and belief matters deeply right now. It's the kingdom. So how can you be sure 
that you'll overcome? How can you be sure that the phoenix will take flight out of the tragedies and out of the difficulties? Why? You can't be sure, because it's faith. I wish I could tell you that there was this great equation that if you just read this verse, if you memorized it, but it's faith. And when God has given you the faith to believe that Jesus is alive, then anything can rise from the ashes. And it is a gift to believe that. It is a gift to understand that Jesus is alive, that his body was not turned to ash, but was reanimated by the breath of the God of the universe to show us that they have no power. Death, hell, and the grave have no power. And so it matters. Over the next five weeks, we're gonna look at rising out of the ashes of loneliness and doubt and depression and anxiety and fear. Each week, we're gonna take a different topic and say, what is the phoenix that God can rise out of the ashes of these circumstances? So what is God inviting you into given that information, given what we've talked about today? I did most of the talking, let's be honest. But what is God inviting you into? I I really do believe that no matter where you are in your faith journey, if this is it, if this is your first time ever encountering a community of faith, if maybe you walked away and you rejected a God that was abusive through the hands of a leader, whatever your space is, I believe that this God who holds everything together with love is whispering into your heart today. So what is God whispering to you? The band's gonna sing a song for you this morning. You can sit and listen. If you wanna stand, you can stand. If you wanna sing, sing. But this is a gift for you to just breathe a little bit and think about that question and ask yourself, what is God inviting me into today? Maybe God's inviting you into a transformed understanding of what it means to have an all-powerful God. That God doesn't have to be in control to have things under control. And that does not make this God any less intimate or loving. In fact, it probably makes this God more amazing, more powerful, more mesmerizing. So maybe that's a big shift for you. But maybe there's something inside of you that says that kind of holds everything together a little bit. So maybe in this moment, you're just like, okay, I need to start to embrace. I need to think about that this week. I need to spend some time processing. Maybe you're going through a circumstance of, and there's ash in your life right now. And you've been asking the why question and God is inviting you to, what if we talked about the how? And what if we dealt with the why in eternity? What if we talked about the how right now? And maybe you're being invited by God to do that this week to every day pray, Lord, how are you gonna use this? How can you, I don't see it. How can you make this good and beautiful? And maybe as I talked about those topics of loneliness and fear and doubt, maybe you have a friend who you know is struggling with loneliness and they just popped in your head and maybe that's God whispering. Why don't you invite them over to your house this week and start to break that pattern of loneliness. Invite them to your kitchen table and then maybe invite them out to crossroads to explore how God wants to take our loneliness and rise and bring God's phoenix out of those ashes. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe you just wanna jot something down as you're listening to God. But here's what I promise you this. I promise you, promise you, promise you. If you will ask and listen, God will speak. 
And it might be subtle and it might be a person who pops in your head and you just have to trust that that was love invading your heart, giving you a person, giving you a thought and you just trust, okay, that's, that's God. So as they sing this song, you might wanna jump in, just pause. And I gotta tell you before they sing this song, I hated that I loved this song. I heard this song, I was like, oh, I love it. I love to sing it, but I hated that I loved it because I felt like, man, the only person who could ever write this song was a white middle-class American worship leader with a great house and two cars and two beautiful children, right? Because this song just says, you are good, you are good. And it says, you're never gonna let me down. And I thought to myself, I've walked this earth. I've walked through the dump sites in Manila. I've seen kids picking up trash to, so that they could have a meal tomorrow, maybe. I've walked and, and I've, I've sat with people under the bridges in Romania, in the developing world, who they don't know where food is coming. It's the middle of winter and they're surrounded by blankets, just trying to survive. And I said to myself, God, how could they ever sing, you'll never let me down? They don't know where food comes from. Wendy and I have walked through Ethiopia. We've met the street children, the street boys who are, how do they ever sing this song? But here's what's so amazing. In all those contexts, I met people who followed Jesus and had experienced God. And they were the ones who sang this song with the most authority because they knew what I didn't know. That a good, all power for God does not mean that only good comes in my life. It means that I know that God will redeem it and use it for my good and my neighbor's good. And sometimes my neighbor's good is more important than mine. And so now I sing this song with joy in my heart in faith that God will never let me down, that when I go through the evil, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you will bring life, maybe not to me, but to somebody else through it. And I find my joy in that. So take a few moments before we rush out and see what God might say to you today.